And it makes me tired just thinking about trying to do all that stuff. Welcome to uh, the Labor Day edition of Mount Perry North Canton. Um, but uh, Labor Day is tomorrow. Obviously, those that don't have to work are fully aware of that. Um, and those that do have to work are mad that they don't get to participate in that, I'm sure. Uh, but Labor Day, as it was mentioned right there at the end of the video, became a national holiday in 1894. And there's a lot of things, if you understand the story of Labor Day and you understand the different dynamics that went into that, it was related to unions and getting certain rights for workers and certain states started making it state holidays and they allowed for a day where people could march on the Capitol and that they could go and protest and try to get their rights and their labor rights and things like that. But eventually it did become a national holiday and what it provides for many among the working class of Americans is a day off from work. You get to work, um, you know, your portion of the year and at the end or somewhere in the middle of that uh, fiscal year or work year that you have, at the end of the summer season, you get one Monday off that doesn't count against your vacation time usually. It doesn't count against other things that you've got because you have worked. And so the, co- the, the, the country, the nation wants to reward you for your labor and for your hard work. And so they're going to give you a day off where uh, it used to be, it's not this case uh, as much anymore, but it used to be that there were tons and tons of activities and tons and tons of parades all around the nation. There still are in some places. Other places, they just allow you to kind of go and do what you want to. And so maybe you're going to go to the lake. Maybe you're going to have a cookout with friends or family. Maybe you're going to take a Tylenol PM tonight and just sleep all day tomorrow and just rest and you know, kind of get a break from your labor or something like that. But really, it's the idea that you have worked and you've worked hard. And as a reward for that hard work, you are going to get rewarded for it by having a day off. And and here's the interesting thing to me when I think about it, because there's nothing wrong with Labor Day. I am off tomorrow, and I'm really excited about being off tomorrow. But the idea being that other than my paycheck, I should get something else as a reward. It's owed to me. You know, it's due me that I should get something for the work that I've done other than the paycheck that they provide or the things that they get as far as benefits. It's like there's something else that's due to me. And so, you know, uh, you've got this day at the end of the summer where I don't have to work because it's owed to me. It's now a national holiday, and so we get to celebrate that. And in our culture, in our country, there are a lot of, of these kinds of thoughts that really make their way into the other areas of our lives. It's not just related to our work life. It's related to our relationships. It's related to our finances, even beyond the paychecks that we get. It's related to uh, the, the people that we interact with, that something is due us because of what we've done. We've worked hard for it, and so someone should owe uh, something to us. Or even beyond that, we've earned it. We've worked hard. We've earned it. And so someone should be, uh, they should know what I've done to earn the things that I've, you know, that I've accomplished. And so everybody should kind of turn their attention towards me and celebrate what I've done and make sure that they know where, uh, where I'm headed with life and the things that I'm accomplishing. And, and we get into this place that has nothing to do with Labor Day, but that has everything to do with the idea that we feel like We're earning everything that we are creating with our lives. And we talked about this a little bit last week with tithing. We've talked about it over the last few weeks when we talk about contagious generosity. If we're not careful, we get into this place in our life where everything that we think we possess in life is because we've been good at something or that we're talented enough or we're smart enough or that we've earned it, that we're good enough. And that's not all bad, 
until we try to bring those things usually into relationships, not just uh, you know, a, a relationship with a heavenly father, which we'll get into in a minute, but even into relationships on earth. Because what we do is then we think we have to earn someone's acceptance. We think we have to earn someone's love. We think we have to earn someone's attention. Now, I don't know if you just watched what took place here in the last few minutes, but when Crystal was up here holding Rylan and Sean was here, I don't know really that Rylan's able to do a whole lot yet to earn her father's affection other than just kind of look at him with those goo-goo eyes that she did there for a moment. But Sean is completely infatuated with this child. I don't say that about him like there's something wrong with him. I've got four of them that I've done that same thing. You just, you just look at them and you go, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't know that I could love anything or anyone more than I do this child, this individual we look at our spouse, we look at other relationships, we look at the, the family that maybe we came out of and you have those affections and those emotions towards those in your family and we, we don't have to earn that love. And yet some of us, if we're not careful, we get into this place in our life and we get in this routine where we believe that we have to earn love and earn acceptance and earn our place because we live in this society where everything else is kind of a transaction that Something is given to me after I give or do something for someone else. And, and you've seen this, you know this, I've experienced it, you've experienced it, but what it breeds in us is incredible insecurity. It breeds in us terrible misplaced emotion in relationship. It causes us to turn our affection towards unworthy objects or people, all because we're trying to earn someone's love. All because we are trying to find someone that will look at us and say, I find value in you. We talked a few months ago in a series that we did on the Sabbath, the idea of Sabbath rest. We talked about this idea that if we're not careful, our identity is not actually about our identity. It's actually about what we are able to produce with our lives. And I came across this quote. I don't think I used this during that series, but I came across this in some resources that I, I just accumulate for, for sermons and things. But a, a friend of mine had said this in something I was a part of several months before, and he says this. He says, if you cannot take a day off, your identity's wrapped in what you do and not in who you are. Now, some of you are like, no, I got no problem taking days off. It ain't got nothing to do with my identity. I ain't got no problem with that. But it is the idea that if we're not careful, we become what we do. And not just because it shapes us and molds us in a good way, but because we realize that what we produce with our lives is actually where we are validated. And so we begin to allow that idea to just permeate everything that we are and everything that we do. And we do this with our kids. I am as guilty of this as anything. I just told you to give your kids money for good grades. Heaven help me. But we, 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 uh, you know, we, we clap for our kids, you know, pee-peeing in the potty. Way to go. And then we're disappointed when they don't pee-pee in the potty and they have an accident. And if we're not careful, there's nothing wrong with that, I don't think. But if they, some psychologist could tell me, no, that is ac actually wrong and you're dementing, you know, creating something in your child. But I don't think that's wrong. But what it does, if we're not careful, as we continue and continue in those patterns of behavior is then we make our kids think they have to earn our love. 
that mommy and daddy clap when they do good things and they frown when we do bad things or I get disciplined when they do bad things. And so what happens then is we begin to go through life and we continue in that pattern. And this is nothing new. I've talked about this. You know this. We've seen this played out in some of us in our own lives, some of this in other people's lives. But it creates in us this idea that I have to earn my place. And then we come to God which sometimes is a good thing to do in situations when I'm setting stuff up like this, and sometimes we just write it off and go, yeah, it's God, though, and it's Jesus, and that I don't know how to live like that, and so I don't know how to pull truth out of that, but we come to an interaction with Jesus, the Son of God, when he was on earth, and his father. Not his earthly father, Joseph, but his heavenly father, God, And we see Jesus doing something here and his father responding to him. This is in Matthew chapter 3. If you got a Bible, you can flip there. We're not going to stay there very long today, but Matthew chapter 3. This is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's actually prior to any of the ministry that he's done yet. And he is interacting with a man named John. John the Baptist is what he's often referred to. And John, his ministry is a little bit ahead of Jesus' at this point. It's a little bit larger, a little little more well-known. Um, a little more established. And so John is out in the desert and he is baptizing people in water. And he's uh, allowing them to declare that they have received the free gift of salvation. They have repented of their sins and he's baptizing them in water as this public demonstration of that. And Jesus shows up one day to be baptized by John. And John kind of puts up a front, depending on which of the versions you read of this story in several of the gospel accounts, John says, no, I can't baptize you. I'm not worthy of this. And and Jesus, no, I need you to baptize me. And this is what it says after Jesus has been baptized. He goes down in the water, beginning in verse 16 of Matthew 3. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. He came out because we, we believe with baptism. We stop right here. We believe in full immersion of baptism, which means that you are going completely under the water and coming out of the water. Um, Our next opportunity for that is September the 28th, just a few weeks from now, where people are going to go public with the life change that's happened in their lives. And so he goes down into the water, and immediately he comes up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, I love this passage because of the timing of it and the theological implications. If you are tracking with me right there, this is um, one of the places in Scripture where all three persons of the Trinity are present. The Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We believe that's God, three persons in one, and all three are present right here in this interaction. Jesus is coming up out of the water, The voice of God is speaking from the heavens, and the dove that descends is the Spirit. And so all three are present right here. So I love this passage because we get to see that. It it, it further reiterates the truth of who Jesus claimed to be when he was on earth, and the truth of Scripture is according to who God is and the Spirit and and Jesus and all the, the roles that they're able to play together and individually on the earth. And so I love that. I also love that this takes place before Jesus has ever done one miracle. Before Jesus has ever stood up and preached his first sermon, all summer long this summer, we preached on the Summer at the Mount, that sermon that Jesus preached in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And what we're reading here takes place in Matthew 3. 
before he ever stands up to preach his first sermon, before he ever heals the first person, he goes and he's baptized. And in that moment, God the Father responds to him and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God is saying to Jesus and those who can hear the voice of God before he can do anything to earn my love, I'm pleased with him. Before he can heal the blind man by making mud in the dirt with spit and putting it on his eyes and him being able to see. Before he can raise Lazarus from the dead, which he's going to do. Before he can take five loaves and two fish and feed more than 5,000 people in a day. Before he can do any of that. Before he can stand and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Before he can say any of those incredible things before he himself can go to the cross and die for the salvation of mankind and then go into a tomb completely dead and then be raised from the dead three days later and eventually ascend back to me. Before he can do any of that, I want the entire world to know and I want my son to know that I love him and I'm well pleased. Some of us have spent our entire lives seeking that kind of affirmation. Some of us have spent years and broken relationships and harmful things and hurtful people trying to find someone that would look at us and say, I love you and I am so pleased with who you are, who you're becoming. This is not the only time that God would say these words. Later in the book of Matthew, in Matthew 17, there's a story that is often referred to as the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus takes uh, his closest disciples with him and they go up to the top of this mountain. And when they get there, um, these two Old Testament figures, Moses and Elijah, they come and they are there with them on the top of that mountain. And this incredible thing, Jesus' appearance changes in that moment. He is literally transfigured before them and he's, he's, he's bright white and they see the glory and the light of God shining through him. And there's this incredible thing that's happening there. Peter's like, hey, let's just build some tents and let's stay here forever. And I don't ever want to leave this place because your glory is so real. Your power is so real. Who you are, who you claim to be, it's all right here in front of me and I don't ever want to leave. But God says in that moment, in Matthew 17, 5, he said, But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son, who brings me great joy. Listen to him. It's this gentle reminder that the father is proud of his son. That Father God is proud of who Jesus is. But it's not about earning that. It's not even about working harder so someone will say those things to us because I know I, I've dealt with this kind of mindset from time to time in my life. I think it's, it's normal for a lot of us in some way to kind of chase or pursue that. But it's not about earning anything because in a world where we earn our keep, we might think it's possible to even earn our salvation, to earn right standing with God, to earn our righteousness, to be good enough 
Because if we're not careful, and, and I, I could be the worst at this from time to time if I'm not careful, but people who stand on stages like this or sit in classrooms or in life group settings or are on television preaching and teaching the gospel, the good news, if we're not careful, sometimes we can make it more about the do's and don'ts than about what's already been done on our behalf. Because what happens is it becomes about you need to not do these things, the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not do that. Instead, do these other things. Go to church and give to the church, which we talked about, and read your Bible and have a personal devotion life and pray and fast and meditate and journal and have experience solitude and worship and sing and do all of these things. And so if you do those things, you're a good person. And if you don't do these lists over here, then you're not a bad person. And so we think sometimes that it's about the do's and the don'ts. But the good news of the gospel is that everything that needed to be done has been done. In the person of Jesus Christ, when he went and he hung on a cross, which I referenced just a moment ago, and he hung there between heaven and earth, abandoned seemingly by his father, pushed aside by humanity in that moment, and he hangs there, and he says at the end of his life, just before life would leave his body, it is finished. The book of Romans would say to us that what was actually finished is that the need for repetitive, regular sacrifice to take the place of the sins that we committed was no longer needed. That there was now a once-for-all-time sacrifice that had been made. That in the person of Jesus Christ and him on the cross, the one sacrifice that was needed for our salvation took place on that cross. And so it was no longer needed for us to constantly, every year, on the anniversary of our sin or the anniversary of something that God had commanded to his people in the Old Testament, for us to continue to regularly give of the sacrifice in that way. But in our culture today, I think sometimes we miss that. And our God becomes our goodness. That's often referred to as moral deism. It's the idea that our morality, our goodness becomes our God. We are not pursuing relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. We are pursuing goodness by good behavior instead of bad behavior. And we think if I can just do better and I can quit doing these things and keep doing these things, that I become better and better and good enough for God to look at me and accept me because everybody else in my life says that they won't accept me unless I am doing the things that please them. And so if they please me based on my behavior, then surely God must view me the same way. And then we come to this incredible letter of Ephesians that Paul writes to a church in the city of Ephesus who were in a culture like that, a similar culture where things were happening in the city of Ephesus where it was about what you could accomplish, what you could earn. It was a place of, of incredible marketplace transactions. There was even uh, other gods and other religions and other things that were taking place there where you had to go and present yourself as a physical sacrifice, not necessarily to be killed, but maybe for others to take pleasure in you so that you could be found worthy enough to be accepted in that society. And so Paul says to that group of people in a letter called Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, he says this. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He says, it's for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God and not a result of works, so that no one can boast. What he's saying here is, listen, if your salvation could be earned by you doing good works, then you would think that you were capable of being the once-for-all sacrifice. That you had enough, you could do enough to get to God, and you can't. And so he says it's, it's faith in God, which is given to us by the grace of God as a free gift to us. A gift is not something you earn, it's something that you receive freely. If it's not given freely, then it's not actually a gift. It's something that you purchase. It's a goods. And that's not what happens here. God, by his grace, gives to us the faith that we can have in his son, Jesus Christ, so that we can receive the salvation that we need. I ran across this quote from Martin Luther, the early kind of faith father. This is what Martin Luther said. The most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man is that somehow he can make himself good enough to deserve to live forever with an all-holy God Somewhere in our minds as human beings, we have gotten to the place where we think we can just be good enough. I, I, don't, I don't want to get too deep here, but I'm afraid that somehow that same mindset that connects to our work life and what we're owed and what's due us, and that same mindset that gets into our relationships here on earth with other people where we have to earn our keep or be good enough or allow them to accept us based on how good we are, how much we please them or how many things we do that they find good or right in us, that gets to that place where we approach God and we say, I have to work for you so that you'll love me. Now, Works do play a role in the Christian life. Interestingly, works play no role in the pre-Christian life. Prior to entering into relationship with Jesus, works get you no better standing with God. Entering into relationship with Jesus Christ, coming into that relationship, having the faith through the free gift of God's grace... And coming into that relationship that says, hey, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And now I am following after you, pursuing you with all of my heart. After that moment, works plays a huge role in that. We read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. I want to read the very next verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. This is what Paul says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, I, I want to be careful because I don't want to create more questions than I have time to answer here. But the idea is that when God created you, he had work for you to do. But it was not his desire that you would do that work to earn his love. It's that you would accept his love and then get busy doing the work that he had for you. One last quote that I ran across from Pastor Louis Giglio. 
He said recently we should lead from acceptance, not for it. He was talking to a group of leaders when he said this, but he said we should lead from acceptance, not for it. The understanding being that the, the, the negative connotation here is that we would lead to be accepted. I think you could take this beyond anything related to leadership and you could say we should live from acceptance, not for it. That we should work from acceptance, not for it. That we should worship from acceptance, not for it. That we should read our Bible from acceptance, not for it. We should attend church from a place of acceptance, not so that we will be accepted. That we would give not, not, we would give not uh, seeking acceptance so that we would say, God, I'm giving this to you so that you will accept me. But we say, no, I am accepted by God. I have received the free gift. And in response to that, I give of myself, of my time, of my resource. We come to this place where we say, okay, how do I view works? How do I view God in relationship to me and my efforts? Do I feel like I have to do things so God will accept me or do I work in response to the acceptance he's already extended to me? See, for me, this idea, it's revolutionary. It is life-altering, life-changing when we say, God, somehow some way, you're different from every person I've ever met on this earth. And you don't view me as someone who has to do things to make you happy. You love me. You created me. You knit me together in my mother's womb. That's what the scripture says. Corey, in the hospital room with every one of those babies has read that scripture. This idea that God knit us together. He created us. He knows us intimately. He knows us inside and out. He stitched us together. I, I think of this idea in Ephesians here, this, that we are God's workmanship, that, that, a, that a woodworker, that a master builder sitting in his wood shop, he's, he's creating something. He's whittling something. He's creating something that doesn't look like anything for a while. And then towards the end, we see it come to be. Because I can look back on my life and I can look and go, I don't think that experience created anything. I don't think there was any good in that until I see what God did through that to create in me something. To shape in me, to mold me. To purge me, to clean me, to grow me, to challenge me. This idea that God views me differently than every other person that I interact with on the earth. And so here, here's what I would say to you today about this Labor Day Jesus. You don't have to work for him, for him to love you. God doesn't need you to perform for him. God's not waiting on you to do something so he can be pleased with you. God just wants you to be with him. That's how he called his disciples. In Mark chapter 3, the 12 guys that Jesus would eventually do life with for three years, and they would be present for those miracles, and they would be present for those incredible teachings. He did not say, come 
so that we can do this. He eventually said, hey, come, I'll make you fishers of men. But he didn't say, come, so you can heal the sick. And he didn't say, come, so we can transform the world. He called them in Mark chapter 3 by saying, come and be with me. Come and be with me. And I think that's what God's calling you to today. I think that's what he's calling me to today. He's saying, listen, quit working to gain me and just be with me. I've got work for you to do. I've got things I want us to accomplish. I think there's a unique skill set in you. There's a unique personality in you. You interact with people in such an incredible way that I want to use you for incredible kingdom things. But just come and be with me first. Rest in me. Come to me. Be with me. Quit working to earn me. Push aside that moral deism, that goodness is my God kind of mindset and say, I just want Jesus. I just want to be with you. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. God, I pray today for every person in this room who thinks they have to earn your love, who's somehow under the impression that you have withheld your love until they perform for you, that you're withholding your affection towards them, that you're withholding salvation or grace and mercy, you're withholding something from them until they're good enough. God, today I pray that you would help us just to rest in you, be with you. God, I pray that you would help us to accept the call, just be with you. That God, we wouldn't lead for acceptance, we would lead from acceptance. We wouldn't live for acceptance, we would lead from acceptance. That God, our lives would be on mission because we are in relationship with you. We've already accepted who you want us to be. We've already accepted the free gift of salvation. And God, now you're, you've got us on mission. We're, we're accomplishing what you want us to accomplish because we are in relationship with you. And God, I pray that none of us in this room would ever approach another human being, another person that you knit together in their mother's womb, another person that you freely give grace to, another person that doesn't have to earn your love by them performing. God, and I pray that we would never put that weight on other people. Help us not to put that weight, that unnecessary weight on them, that they have to earn your love or ours. But they have to earn your forgiveness or ours. Let us live in such a way that demonstrates your love. God, they would see you in the way that they interact with us. I pray today for every person who's a people pleaser and carries that into God-pleasing behavior. That it's not about doing right because it's the right thing to do. It's about doing right to earn you. Help us live for you. Help us love you. But God, let us rest in who you are and who you allow us to be. In Jesus' name I pray.
Amen.